Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. If you had to um, live on a desert island with four of your Senate colleagues, two Republicans and two Democrats, who would you bring? Uh, and why? Todd and Mitt on the, on the Republican side. Todd Young and Mitt Romney, to be clear. I like them both, and they're fit. <laughs> uh, and so they'd be useful. You mean physically fit? Yeah, yeah. That is some advanced thinking for this kind of question. That's impressive. Yeah. Introducing the senior senator from Hawaii, Brian Schatz. And on the Democratic side, it's, you know, I guess it would be Booker and Murphy just because they're my buddies too. No, no, sorry. Murphy gets out. I get Heinrich because Heinrich is actually capable. You know, he did that thing with Jeff Flake on the Pacific Island and, oh, he did like a, he did a show actually, like a reality show. Right, right. But the guy scuba dives and hunts, and we, he would make sure we ate, and Corey might even have to break his veganism. I'm Ryan Lizza. I'm one of the authors of Playbook, and this is Nerdcast. In Washington this year, there's been a lot of attention on the people you might call the eggshell senators, the Democratic moderates. So everyone walks on eggshells when they're around them. Why? Well, in a 50-50 Senate, you have to cater to their whims. West Virginia's Joe Manchin, who is 73, is the most famous example. Joe Manchin, uh, the, the king of these United States. We don't hear as much from a lot of other important Democrats, especially a younger crew of senators who are quietly changing the institution's left flank. Many of the ideas we fought for that just a few years ago were considered radical are now mainstream. They're making it more progressive, challenging the previous generation's thinking about big issues like taxes and debt, even breaking the mold about how senators communicate. And they're leading the charge against what they see as the chamber's antiquated rules, especially the filibuster. I wanted to talk to Senator Schatz because, one, he's only 48, a spring chicken in a place that's been compared credibly to a nursing home. Two, because he's been a leading proponent of the leftward push that Democrats are taking these days. One that has pushed Joe Biden to go big and bold on policy in a way that's probably surprised a lot of people who remember Biden as the moderate in the Democratic primaries. Actually, Schatz told me recently that the best book he's read in a while is The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton which has persuaded lots of Democrats that the politics of debt has completely changed. And three, as anyone who follows him on Twitter knows, he generally talks like a real human being. If, like me, you started covering the White House in the Clinton era and watched Obama's eight years up close, Biden's first two months have been eye-opening. At the level of both strategy and policy, progressives are now very much in control of the Democratic Party, in a way they weren't in those two previous eras. If you want to understand this current era of Democrats, Schatz is a pretty good place to start. 
Having said all of that, one big takeaway from this conversation with Schatz, as you'll hear, is that he and his progressive colleagues are still walking on eggshells. They know that Biden is siding with the left across a wide range of issues, but they can't always say it out loud. So while they're winning, they're not really bragging about it. So can Biden replicate the success of the COVID relief bill? Senator Schatz didn't quite say it, but to me, he made it clear that the secret to doing that is appeasing the centrist's obsession with bipartisanship, which means crafting a bill that attracts at least 10 Republicans, all the while preparing for the inevitable endgame. That's when Democrats, once again, are very likely to use the reconciliation process that will allow them to pass something with just their 50 Democrats. You can call this a portrait of a progressive walking on eggshells. You're pretty well known for being active on Twitter, Senator Schatz. I don't know if that's a, a reputation you embrace or or not. And I assume you write your own tweets, so you should just confirm that. I do. Would, I think it would yes. shock the political world if your staff were doing your tweets. So, <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's me. What's something... You wanted to tweet, but deleted and just decided, oh, I can't, I can't Oh, do man, it. I'm not doing that. Like, it's not like that doesn't make any sense. If I deleted it, why would I put it on Ryan Liz's podcast? That makes no sense. Sorry, I can't do it. More seriously, what do you get out of the interaction and the use of Twitter? Do you ever tell yourself, ah, this is this is stupid. It's not real life. I shouldn't be tweeting so much and, and pull back. Like, what's your what's like your, your purpose in using it? Uh, I think, you know, people are interested to hear directly from a a member of the United States Senate. And I think that what, to the extent that I've had success on the platform, it's because it's actually me and it sounds like me and I make errors and it's not always like on message. And sometimes you can tell I'm mad or sometimes you can tell I'm watching basketball and and being self-indulgent. And I just think that they like the fact that I seem like a human. And so um, that's what I use it for. I've tried to be a little less online on Twitter, frankly, now that I have more governing responsibilities now that we're in the majority. I'm the chair of the Indian Affairs Committee and I'm the chair of the Transportation and HUD Subcommittee. So I've like got, and I just joined the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So there's just literally less time and I'm less pissed off. I mean, there's lots to do, but I'm less, you know, constantly angry as a result of the Trump administration. So I have less to tweet about as it relates to the outrages of the day. Everyone's mental health has improved a bit, I think, uh, online. I think that's fair. I want to pause here, listeners, to say making these politicians seem human is kind of hard sometimes. A side note, he tweets a lot, like Donald Trump a lot. But now that he's in the majority and there's actually work to be done, the tweets have gotten a little less frequent. So, Senator, you said in an interview recently that there was an embarrassment of riches in the American Rescue Plan in terms of how much Democrats accomplished in in one piece of legislation. Let's just start with that plan. And I want to talk about the substance, but first I want to talk about the recipe for passing it. I've covered the first years of several presidents now, and big legislation like this rarely passes as easily as this one did. What were the ingredients that made this such an easy lift? And, you know, tell me if you think that characterization is wrong from your perspective being in the middle of it. You know, it didn't feel easy. So that's the first thing. But to answer your question, uh, a couple of elements. Uh, First, I think we learned our lesson uh, from the 2009 
period of time, both in terms of uh, scale and ambition and understanding that deficit scolding is something that only happens when Democrats are in charge. And we chose, I think, rightly in this emergency period to jettison those concerns, not forever, but certainly in the middle of, of the worst economic downturn in most of our lives and the worst uh, healthcare situation in all of our lives, that this was no time to be counting beans, uh, that we really needed to push out as much relief as we possibly could uh, to the American people. The other element, of course, is that we promised to deliver pandemic relief as our primary reason for being, reason to take the Senate, a reason to have Joe Biden as president. And so there was a political imperative uh, to deliver. And I also think that every single member of the Democratic uh, Conference in the Senate, and I believe in the House as well, is experiencing what their constituents are experiencing in terms of actual, uh, an, uh, an economic extinction event. You know, back in Hawaii, we've got Love's Bakery and Leaky Leaky Drive-In and all of these local institutions that are shutting down permanently. And that's happening times 50,000 across the country and understanding that people don't have the ability to get through even the next three months. It may feel hopeful because of the vaccine deployment and better governance and better weather and better compliance with masking. But three months is an eternity if you're trying to pay the rent or buy your groceries or try to figure out how you're going to pay your employees. And so the urgency of the actual emergency is sort of, I think, underestimated in political circles. They're trying to figure out what changed politically. Well, what changed politically is there's a pandemic and that pandemic is what we're responding to. Yeah, very different than the crisis Obama was responding to, where there was a there was a lot of anger at where the 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 bailouts and that bled into the the stimulus proposal. You didn't have that dynamic, which sort of leads to my next question: is one thing that seems very different this time uh, than the last couple of times that a Democratic uh, president came into office is. Usually in 1993, this happened with Bill Clinton. In 2009, this happened with Barack Obama. There is usually a big backlash against the use of, of government's power. We saw in, in 93 that happen with the, with the health care bill that Clinton put forward. We saw it in 2009 with the ACA and, and the stimulus and the emergence of this grassroots very libertarian-inspired, anti-government Tea Party movement. One of the distinguishing characteristics of the first few months or first two months of the Biden administration is that I haven't seen that. And I know you're a student of history and, and, and of politics. And correct me if you think that that history is off. But do you have an explanation for why that kind of opposition has not been as big an obstacle to you and, and, and your Democratic colleagues so far? Well, two things. I think we inverted the way we do this, is that we just decided, hey, what if we help people as much as we possibly can? Uh, and that becomes our economic and political theory of the case. Not because it's guaranteed to um, make sure that we're successful in the midterms, but it's at least worth it if we're not. What is power for except to help people? And what is power for except to deliver on the things that we promised? One of the things I think he's getting at here is this is a new strategy. Democrats have adopted a totally different way of looking at the first year of 
them being in control than Bill Clinton did and the way that Barack Obama did. This COVID relief plan is geared towards a different set of constituents, and they believe that it's going to have these big, big payoffs next year in the midterm elections because it's actually delivering for people in a way that the last two Democratic presidents didn't. And of course, in their first midterms, they both lost Congress. Rather than sit down with the titans of Wall Street and the titans of Silicon Valley and ask them to configure and solve for COVID, right, which would have looked a lot different, why don't we just listen to people who are suffering and they tell us, look, I don't have enough money for rent, I can't buy groceries, I can't service my loans, I can't afford my utilities, and I'm out of a job. Those are the needs that we tried to meet, and I think what's beautiful about it is at least so far... People recognize the difference between um, this legislation and past rescue uh, and stimulus packages. Now, I don't know that this you know, plays out in the way that we hope it does in, in 2022, but I, I guess my view is that if we did it the other way, we know exactly how it plays out. And what is a majority for except to try to help as many people as you can? And just in one sentence, what's, the, what's that distinction you're trying to get at between the help here and previous help? Oh, it's bottom up versus top down. And look, I understand that when you're dealing with an economic downturn that, that has to do with you know, credit default swaps and bad debt and all the rest of it, that you may actually have to look at markets and structures and, and stabilization you know, at the sort of financial services level. And I understand that. Um, but that doesn't make it any more popular. <laughs> and I do think the thing was still top heavy. You still had very few people understanding what was in it for them, because even the part that was designed to provide stimulus was, you know, shovel ready construction projects. So back in the state of Hawaii, sure, we got some money to stabilize state government, totally necessary and important. But then all the all we had was another tranche of money and everything that's shovel ready, remember, tends to be road repaving. So you had like a increased pace of road repaving, which is not a trivial thing and not a terrible thing to do, but hardly a rescue package, right? And contrast a bunch of market stabilization measures and an increased pace of road repaving with what we're doing here, which is cash in your pocket and a shot in your arm. So, all right. So the big question is, is this a set of circumstances that is unique to this pandemic or has politics changed in some fundamental way, as I've seen some people argue, where the response to the pandemic has made it a lot safer for Democrats to use the government to solve people's problems, which is kind of a, a core democratic principle, but which is very often met with, you know, a lot of resistance in our country. This bill, we had a poll at Politico Wednesday morning that showed 72% support for this bill. So that's a lot of Republicans expressing support in a very polarized country. The next bill, the jobs bill, the infrastructure bill, whatever it's going to be called, can this be replicated or was this uh, a unique set of circumstances for a unique crisis? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. It's a really good question. I, my own judgment is that some of this can be replicated and ought to be replicated and that we ought to keep a, a focus 
on people who are suffering the most and need the most help. And also, I think the sort of value of simplicity, you know, I'm one of these people who reads lots of wonky papers and likes to calibrate policy exactly right. And I think that that's one of the weaknesses of the Democratic Party is that universal programs, simple programs, stuff that's easy to describe um, is a winning strategy. It's not that you don't try to dial all the policy tools to the right degree and extent. It's just that sometimes you can overdo that to the point where it sounds like you're not helping anybody and you're focused on the intellectual exercise of determining like worthiness for programs. And I think people feel like, look, I pay my taxes. I don't want to have to go through some eligibility determination. I just want my services back from the government. So I think the, the idea of simplicity and bottom up will carry through this pandemic. But the extent to which, you know, we're simply pushing out cash, I think it's fair to say this will not happen, you know, every six months. What's going to be in this next big Democratic bill? I'm not going to tell you yet. No, I'm kidding. I don't know yet. I mean, I think everyone is starting that negotiating process. You've got committee chairs in, in both chambers. You've got the White House that is, you know, they have their thoughts, but I don't think they've deeply engaged with either the speaker or a majority leader on timing, size, sort of composition of it. And then there's this big political and legislative question about, are we going to try to get 60 votes for this or not? So there's some tactical choices in front of us that I think remain to be made. I will tell you that I'm enthusiastic in particular about the Biden administration's recognition that everything's got to be a climate initiative, especially when you're doing, you're laying down infrastructure, you're making the assumption that you're, you're making an investment for decades, right? Sometimes 30 years, sometimes 50 years, sometimes even on a hundred or more year horizon. And all of the infrastructure that we lay down has to be not just resilient, but enable uh, the economy that we want in the future, which is a clean energy economy. And that's not just a rhetorical flourish. That means certain things as it relates to the way our grid works, the way our transportation systems work, and the way we move uh, people and goods around the country. So I'm really thrilled that climate is not being confined to EPA and the Department of Interior, but it's a State Department enterprise, it's a DOD enterprise. Certainly, Secretary Pete uh, is into this. And so I'm really thrilled to make this a climate package that is also uh, an infrastructure package. Just quickly on the reconciliation debate, I think most observers assume that you're not going to get 60 votes for the Biden shots climate agenda you're not going to get 60 votes for the size and scope of what's being talked about, anywhere from $1 to $4 trillion. You're not going to get 60 votes for the pay-fors that, uh, that Biden proposed in the, in the campaign, even if they're, they're tweaked. And so most people assume this is going to be a 50-vote bill, not a 60-vote bill. Is there any reason to think that this won't go through reconciliation? Uh, look, I, you know, the way I look at this is we ought to pursue this on a bipartisan basis because there were a lot of Republicans and some Democrats who did not like how quickly we pivoted to reconciliation on the COVID package. I think it was appropriate for us to move super quickly because this is a true emergency. I mean, days matter, right? Days without vaccines, days without cash in people's pockets. That's about lives and livelihoods. If we're making long-term infrastructure investments, I don't think we can quite make the argument that we don't have days to spare, right, to get this right. And so, you know, I want to pursue bipartisanship as aggressively as possible. I do think if Mitch McConnell is pretty explicit in saying, A, this has to be paid for, and B, 
I don't think our caucus has the appetite to raise revenue. That sounds like he's representing to us that there will not be very many Republican votes for a package. But sometimes Mitch says things and they turn out not to be true. And so I think we really want to explore the space for bipartisanship. Certainly, um, Lindsey and others have talked about revenue raisers that, that he's interested in. And so I want to, you know, as, as my friend Mark Warner says, explore the deal space. Okay, pausing here again to say this is a big question. How much Democrats in power are going to head fake in the next few weeks toward bipartisanship, or whether they're going to cut their losses and pass another bill through reconciliation, where they only need 50 votes. It interested me that Schatz is being really careful here and going really hard on compromise, talking about trying to bring on Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham! Even name-checking Mitch McConnell. I don't think Schatz really believes that McConnell and Graham are going to support any shots Biden bill. And most progressives would tell you that the chance that they are or that their vote for any Democratic infrastructure bill is highly unlikely. Again, it's the walking on eggshell strategy. Schatz is going through the motions more for his moderate Democratic colleagues than anything else. I feel like you're a bit of an expert on your moderate colleagues. Uh, I can't help but uh, point out your famous quip earlier this year when you saw Senator Manchin in the hallway and, and uh, jokingly referred to him as your, your highness, right? I think it was your highness. Um, do you believe that uh, Sir Manchin is on board with a reconciliation approach if, if there's a, a serious bipartisan attempt before you get there? Well, I'm not, you know, some Joe Manchin whisperer. He's a friend, he's a colleague, and I'm not going to represent his views. I I will say that there are a lot of people who want to, in earnest, at the committee level, try to figure out if we can mark up bills on a bipartisan basis. And I'm one of them. Um, It's just that, you know, I, I love bipartisanship. I come from the state of Hawaii where there are very few Republicans, and that was not a sort of muscle I exercised because it just wasn't necessary to pass a bill. So when I got here, it was something I had to learn. And frankly, one of the more rewarding aspects of being in the Senate is to try to figure out how to build these relationships and shepherd legislation through. So I want to pursue bipartisanship as aggressively as we can. It's just that bipartisanship for me is is a means to an end and not the end. And so if bipartisanship turns out not to be possible and we have some other avenue at our disposal, then I think we should pursue it. So that leads to the question that's on a lot of people's minds this week about filibuster reform. Uh, The president made some news this week when he suddenly said that he was for some version of of filibuster reform in an interview with George Stephanopoulos. As someone who is is a big proponent of getting rid of the filibuster, how did you interpret his comments and their impact on the possibility for getting rid of the filibuster this Congress? Well, I think it opens up a conversation about how the filibuster is being used, right? It was always intended to be a kind of once in a Congress, once in a career moment to sort of stake your political reputation on something, stand there and deliver on the floor like like a Frank Capra movie, right? That was that was the deal. And now it's become so routine as to be too easy, right? You, you email, the, you literally just tell your LD, your legislative director, to email the cloakroom and say, uh, block that. And then you get on your plane sometimes and leave while you're blocking a bill. It's, it's just too painless to block someone else's bill. And I think we have to make this 
a difficult process. And if there are members who don't want to get rid of it completely, then this may be a kind of place where we can still have the ability to block legislation and require 60 votes for either the motion to proceed or for or cloture or for all of it, but not have it be so painless as to be used essentially weekly on everything, uh, routine legislation all the time. You know, and if we want to have some big, uh, exciting political battles about two or three issues where people are willing to take the floor for three or four days, then that might be good for American-style democracy. But the idea that you can block anyone else's bill without any pain, I think, is not the way the Senate was supposed to work. You majored in philosophy. What is something from your study of philosophy that has helped you as a United States senator? Ha! Uh, well, uh, was it Kant that said philosophy does not bake bread? Um, and I, I sort of think a little bit about the the work that we're doing and imagining whether or not it actually matters to anybody. And to the extent that all we're doing is having salons on public policy issues, you know, I, I am reminded that we we're put in a high position to enact laws, uh, not to just, in the colloquial sense, philosophize. I got to be somewhere in two minutes. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That was fun. And that's our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like our show, then like it. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps more people find the show. And check out my stories every morning in Politico Playbook, your unofficial guide to official Washington. Thanks for listening. Okay, I'm going. Thanks. Thanks, Senator.